What would you say is the greatest threat against Christianity today? I suppose some people will say, you know, it's the government overreach. Others will say, you know, it's the godless politicians. No, it's the activist judges. No, it's Hollywood. Uh, sure. Uh, these are all uh, the places and sources of opposition against Christianity, and that is true. But if you notice in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, we saw that sometimes the attack against the gospel does not just come from hostile unbelievers from outside the church, but sometimes the attack against the gospel comes from those those who claim to be and even believe that they are serving the Lord and are friends and supporters of the gospel. And so we saw how some men came from Judea claiming to represent the apostles and the Jerusalem leaders and their teachings. And they taught the Gentile believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we saw how this, this dangerous false teaching led astray even people who knew better. This dangerous teaching led astray even Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews. And this dangerous teaching caused a deep division in the church. And so in response, the church at Antioch commissioned sent Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And so the Jerusalem council was convened. And last week we began to see the, the initial steps, initial meetings of the council, and today we come to find out the verdict and the judgment of the Jerusalem council. And the first thing we learn from this Jerusalem council is that it is not necessary to become Jews in order to be saved. It is not necessary to become Jews in order to be saved. So if you look back to verses 6 and 7, we read, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And we saw this last week, didn't we? How Peter stood up after stumbling about the very message of the gospel of grace. But Peter, uh, thanks in part to Paul's loving and, and bold rebuke, but also because of God's grace upon him, Peter stood up and affirmed the good news that welcomes Gentiles into God's kingdom, not because they obey God's law, not because they have lived an excellent life, but because they believe in Jesus. And furthermore, in verse 10, this is what Peter said about God's law. He called God's law a yoke that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. So that's Peter asking the question, why? why are we telling the Gentiles to keep the law when we have been unable to keep the law? And you know, at that point, Peter wasn't saying that, that the least 
uh, reformed, the least educated, the least trained people could not keep the law of the Lord. But, but Peter is saying that their best and the most spiritual people, their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, could not keep the law. And even the apostles that were handpicked by Jesus could not keep the law. And so Peter says, we couldn't do it. So why are we telling them that they have to do it to be saved? Because the point you see is clear. Whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, no one has ever kept God's law because it is simply impossible. Because the purpose of God's law is not teach us that by being good, we can earn our place in God's kingdom. The purpose of God's law is to show us how much we fall short of it so that we may go to God and ask for his mercy in the Savior. You see, salvation is God's mercy for lawbreakers. And it's God's mercy to lawbreakers through Jesus' death and resurrection. And following that, Peter and Paul and Barnabas, they gave testimonies of how powerfully God had worked through them, through signs and wonders, attesting to the message that they were proclaiming. And then James spoke. Now, if you remember back in chapter 12, we read that Herod, uh, Herod the king, killed Apostle James, who was John's brother. The James that we are reading about here is uh, Jesus' brother. And it's that James who wrote the letter that bears his name in the New Testament. And if you read the letter uh, James, you see in that letter James' wisdom that is so uh, clearly present in the letter. And in we see that same wisdom on full display here. And James first affirmed Peter's testimony and counsel. And he says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, that's actually a very significant statement because in the Old Testament, the phrase, a people for God's name, or similar phrases, that phrase is always applied to the people of Israel. And now James is saying that God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Meaning, James is here affirming Peter's gospel that God makes the Gentile believers to be a part of true Israel. And so the Gentile believers in Christ now belong to God and are called by his name. Uh, You may be familiar with the kinds of theology that says that that, that, the, the New Testament church is not a true Israel. You know, when I hear that, what I hear them saying is that Jesus has two brides. Uh, the Israelites and the Gentiles. 
let me tell you, Jesus does not have two brides. He has one. He is a faithful husband to one bride. And that's what Peter was proclaiming, and that's what Jesus,、um, James, affirmed here. And then James expounds a prophetic passage, which is from Amos chapter nine, verses eleven and twelve. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that is fallen, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. You see, in Amos chapter nine, that's where God is promising to restore David's ruined house, and when He does that, God also promised that the Gentile remnant will seek the Lord, and God fulfilled that promise to Amos in Jesus Christ, because it is in Jesus Christ that David's fallen tent, his ruined house, his fallen kingdom is raised up. In Jesus's death and resurrection, and then Jesus commanded in Matthew chapter twenty-eight, didn't he?、And、we read that passage this morning. In verse nineteen, Jesus said, "Go therefore and make disciples of all nations." Jesus did not say, "Go therefore make disciples only of the Jews." But go make disciples of all nations. You know this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Amos, when God raised up the fallen tent of David. Gentiles call upon God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So not only the Jews, but all nations call David's son Jesus as their king. And so, what James is showing us is that the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom through Jesus Christ was not a new invention by Paul. Rather, bringing in the Gentiles into God's kingdom in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that they may be counted as Israel. So that they may call upon God as their God, so that they may be called God's people. This was God's plan of redemption, which He revealed to the prophets in the Old Testament. And so, what James does here is that he affirms from Scripture the message of grace that Paul and Peter proclaimed. And what James is saying is that it is not our union with the Jewish people that saves, but it is our union with Christ that saves. It is not necessary to become a Jew for salvation. It is necessary for you to become a Christian for salvation, to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, to trust. In his sin atoning blood, in his sinner justifying resurrection, it is not your relationship to the Jewish people that saves you, but it is your relationship with Christ that saves you. So that's the first judgment of the Jerusalem Council: not necessary to become Jews. Then the second verdict. Not possible to remain pagans. On the one hand, it is not necessary for you to become a Jew, 
to become saved, and also it is not possible to remain pagans once you are saved. So James continues, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Uh, That this exhortation and encouragement has uh, caused some trouble for the interpreters. Um, it's Many people have had difficulty understanding the rationale behind James's exhortation because at first glance, it almost sounds as if James just affirmed the salvation that is by faith apart from keeping of the law, and then he turns around and tells the Gentiles to keep the law. That is what it looks like, and it sounds like on the first glance. But that is actually not what is happening here because, you know, at this very council, uh, both Paul and Peter were present. Paul and Peter, the staunch defenders of salvation by grace alone, and they did not think what James was uh, saying was in any way undermining the gospel of grace. And actually, if you look at verse 31, when, when James's exhortation and judgment is written down in a letter and it is sent to the Gentiles, and when the Gentiles uh, believers receive the letter, you see their response. They rejoice because of its encouragement. You see, the Gentile believers saw clearly that James's encouragement was fully in keeping with the gospel of grace. So what is happening here? Well, let me put it in a concise way first and then explain it. In short, uh, the good news of Jesus Christ says it is not necessary to become a Jew. And it also says it is not possible to remain pagans. Because you see, in those days, a pagan worship was often inseparable from sexual immorality. Um, pagan temples often employed temple prostitutes. And this was a very common thing across many cultures and times. So uh, worshipers of these pagan gods, local deities, would come to these temples and would hire the uh, temple prostitutes. In many cases, they were uh, the temple priestesses, and in in some cases, temple priests. So in pagan temples, uh, sexual immorality was rampant and it was really inseparable from a worship of the idols. And in these places of worship, uh, the sacrifices were often strangled um, and as these animals breathed out their breath, they would breathe in the last breath of the animals uh, in an act in what they considered was breeding in the life force of the animals. And it often happened that these worshipers would also drink the blood of the sacrificed animals in order, and they believed, to absorb the life power of these animals. Um, And that seems to me that the 
the best way of approaching what James is saying here. In other words, uh, it is true that we become Christians and we come to Christ just as we are. Uh, Jesus does not tell sinners, first change your life and then come to me. No, Jesus says, come to me as you are. But once you come to Christ, you cannot remain as you are. You see, the gospel, the free offer of salvation, went out to everyone who would hear and believe. Come to Jesus, no matter who you are, no matter where you have been, whatever your sin, whatever your rebellion, come to Jesus and your sins will be forgiven. But the gospel message also declares, come as you are and be changed. You see, it was impossible for these Gentile believers who by habit and practice and custom had engaged in these pagan worship practices to confess the name of the Lord Jesus and still continue in their pagan practices. They have to leave behind their former life and receive from Christ a new identity, to receive from Christ a new way of living and a new way of worship. So there are two errors that we have to avoid. If we ever feel a reluctance to share the gospel because they seem to you especially sinful, then you misunderstand the gospel. If you feel unwilling and reluctant to share the gospel because they seem to have such a messy life that you want to you want to tell me, you know, you can't come to Jesus like that. You've misunderstood the gospel because the gospel message is come. Whoever you are, whatever you have done, come. So that's the first error that we have to avoid. And the second error that we have to avoid is telling people to come as they are and then telling them to stay as they are. Come, whoever you are, whatever you have done, come to Jesus. He will forgive you and cleanse you, and he will change you. You must turn from your sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it seems to me that is exactly what James is affirming here. And that is why when the Gentile believers receive the word, they rejoice. Because they understood clearly that there is no hindrance for them to come to Jesus. But once they come to Jesus, there is for them the blessing of new life. Clean and holy life and a calling. It is not necessary to become a Jew for salvation and it is not possible to remain pagans after salvation. And thirdly and finally, I want to look at the whole event and note gospel life and theological reflection. Gospel life and theological reflection. When hostile unbelievers attack the gospel, the dangers are usually easy enough and clear enough to see. But when the gospel is attacked by those who claim to be its friends, 
as the case was here, it is often much more difficult to answer the challenge. Why? Notice back in verse 5, what the believers who belonged to the uh, party of the Pharisees were saying. They were saying from verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now what's happening here? Where are they getting these ideas? Well, circumcision is found in Scripture. Law-keeping is found in Scripture. And so they are making their arguments based on Scripture. And this really illustrates the challenge that we often face. You know, sometimes you hear this kind of uh, mentality and mindset. Oh, we don't need man-made theology. I just need God's Word. It is actually naive to say that the issue is between Bible and man-made theology because these false teachers were quoting Scripture. You see? They were quoting Scripture while ignoring both context and intent of Scripture. So the issue is not scripture versus theology. The issue is not, I have my Bible, you have your doctrines. Rather, the issue is bad theology versus good theology. Do you see that here? They're quoting scriptures. Circumcision is in the Bible. The command to be circumcised is in the Bible. The command to keep the law is in the Bible. That's where they're making their argument from. But they, they misinterpreted and misapplied the scriptures due to bad theology. Sound theology takes in the whole counsel of God's word it carefully weighs both context of God's word and the intent of God's word. And so sound theology provides the tools to accurately and faithfully interpret scriptures. And that's what is happening at the Jerusalem Council. Did you notice how there was much debate? These men well-versed in scriptures whose lives were also demonstrably sanctified in their faithful walk with the Lord. They're having these drawn-out discussions to hash out the questions and to arrive at a faithful and right interpretation of the Bible. And that is why James is able to state in verse 28, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. You know, that's actually a very bold statement, isn't it? I have met many, many charismatic-minded Christians who say, this is what the Holy Spirit told me. And sometimes my retort to them is, oh, he hasn't told me. (laughs) It's actually an awful thing. It's a significant thing to say, this is what the Holy Spirit says. And how is James making the statement? 
Well, he's making the statement because what he did was examine the words of the Holy Spirit from Amos chapter 9. And having weighed the words of Amos chapter 9, which are the very words of the Holy Spirit, and having carefully tested that scripture against other passages, and having carefully examined the matter, James was able to say, this, this is the right understanding of the words of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, they were able to weigh the teachings of Peter and Paul and understand or come to an understanding that what Peter and Paul were teaching was in truth faithful to the will and the direction of the Holy Spirit. Theological reflection is important. It is necessary. And the issue is never Bible versus theology. Because false teachers always quote the Bible. So the issue is bad theology on the one hand and good theology on the other hand. And this is what we are seeing here. Godly men who are well-versed in scriptures, carefully taking their time, hashing out what the questions are, and answering them. Um, The book of Acts, we're in the middle of chapter 15. This book of Acts continues to challenge, doesn't it, the the contemporary mindset of people dismissing the church. You know, how often have you heard, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. (laughs) And I am meeting more often people who say they they are Christians, but do not go to church. Now, I I think we fully understand that there are sometimes abnormal and extenuating circumstances where church attendance is not possible. We understand that. Sometimes you have health challenges. Sometimes you have other variegated reasons why uh, it's it's not possible for you for a season uh, to be part of a church. But it's a different thing altogether when, when you dismiss the very idea of church out of contempt and pride. And so what you often hear, how people summarize Christianity, they say Christianity is all about my personal relationship with Jesus. The danger of the statement is that there is a grain of truth there. Yes, Christianity is about your personal relationship with Jesus, but that's not all of it. Because when we understand Christianity purely in terms of my personal relationship with Jesus, that is a woefully inadequate way to capture the riches of the New Testament Christian life and discipleship. Because in the last 15 chapters in Acts, what have we seen Christians do? Christians, they lived life together as a church. 
Together as a church, they sent out missionaries. Together as a church, they helped the poor. Together as a church, they defended the gospel. Together as a church, they encouraged one another. And together as a church, they were instructed in doctrine and life by pastors and elders. It is true that there is much weakness in the church. There is no denying that. Still, the church that together does the work of the Lord, the church that together sends out missionaries, uh, has compassion on the poor and the suffering, the church that together defends the gospel, the church that together builds up one another, the church of Jesus Christ is the gracious and loving gift of our Savior and King. And for it, we give thanks. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for instructing us this morning. We thank you that you raised up godly people who loved your kingdom and your word, who when they were faced with important and difficult questions, stay true and faithful to your will and to your word and to your son. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would do the same in our midst today, that you will raise up in our congregation both men and women who love you, love your word, and love your kingdom, who are wise to reject the lies and the errors of both unbelievers and those who claim to be friends, that we may with boldness and with faithfulness be loyal to your Son, to his kingdom, and to his good news. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.